0: what we're going to do we're in a sermon series home for christmas we want to be the home for christmas so we've been talking about the various characters in the birth narrative of jesus and how they illustrate the characteristics that make for a god-honoring god-glorifying home we started with joseph and mary and they illustrate what characteristic that's right obedience then why do i bother then we went to the magi last sunday and they illustrate what characteristic Worship, thank you, and today we're going to move on to the shepherds. If you were me and you had to, just in your own mind, you had to pick a, quali- a quality or a characteristic illustrated by the shepherds, I wonder what you would pick. It took me a whole long time to settle on this one, but I think it's a good one, and that is goodness. The shepherds illustrate goodness for us. After all, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and we need to be good shepherds in our homes. We need to be good shepherds in our community and in our church. So that's what we're going to do today. But I want to start off by defining goodness. Uh, And we want to look to God initially for that definition. Uh, In the ultimate sense, only God is good. Remember Jesus said only one is good and that's God the Father. But we're good in a derivative sense. But let's think about what it means when we say God is good. The psalmist writes, good and upright is the Lord. Theologian Jack Coffter writes this, that God is good means that His basic attitude toward His creation is one of benevolence, kindness, and goodwill. He is kind and friendly toward His creatures. He wills and desires to bless them, to do good for them. He has a generous spirit, a spirit of giving and sharing and blessing, a spirit of affection and goodwill. He cares for the welfare of His creatures. All right, So that's kind of a theological definition of the goodness of God. That's what we are striving for, to reflect and to model You know, here, um, let me put this in the first person. For us, is this statement of God true of us? That you are good means that your basic attitude toward your home is one of benevolence, kindness, and goodwill. You are kind and friendly toward your family, friends, fellow Christians, neighbors. You will and desire to bless them and to do good for them. You have a generous spirit, a spirit of giving and sharing and blessing, a spirit of affection and goodwill. You care for the welfare of God's creatures. That's what we want in our lives. The Bible, make no mistake, calls upon us to strive for goodness. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, goodness. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 9, the fruit of light consists in goodness. Paul prays in 2 Thessalonians 1.11, may God give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. So when Jesus was born, God could have invited many different types of people to the birth. He could have invited the Sanhedrin, he could have invited the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes rabbis, these are the the religious professionals, these are the pastors, the ministers, the teachers, the professors of that day. They weren't invited. God could have invited prominent people such as politicians, rich people, powerful people. They weren't invited. He invited the shepherds, a blue-collar working class, because apparently God wasn't looking to send a few prominent men to Jesus' birth. He wanted to send a few good men. So well, let's let the shepherds illustrate that for us this morning. What are some of their good qualities or characteristics that we can incorporate? I want to start with good work. The shepherds were doing good work. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. These were working men. They're working the night shift when the angels appear to them. God in the Bible seems to have a, an affinity for hardworking shepherds, does He not? If you reflect for a few moments on how often shepherds make their appearance in the Bible and are used by God, Abel was a shepherd. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, shepherds. Moses was a shepherd. Uh, David, the shepherd of Israel, who, who wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. The leaders over the nation of Israel were called shepherds. Leaders in the church of Jesus Christ are pastors. What does that word pastor mean? It means shepherds. So God has an an affinity for shepherds, they are hard-working men. And in their work, they are being good. God has called us to work, to do work. Ephesians 4.28, use your hands for good, hard work. And then give generously to those in need. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. If you have a job this morning, I say kudos to you. You have a vocation, a job, you go off to work every day. That is a good thing to do in the eyes of God. Just simply work, especially if you think about in this environment where it's possible for folks to just stay home and and receive a workers' compensation check or to receive a stimulus check and maybe make more even than they could go into a job. So it it becomes a disincentive to work. And a lot of people are not working. But the Protestant work ethic, as it is known, is a thing. It is in the Bible. God likes us to work, to provide for our families and our dependents, and have some to share with others and to the kingdom of God. So kudos to you for working. Also, just want to say this. Some people eventually age out of their prime earning years, maybe reach that age of retirement, Kudos to you. Thank you for working. You worked hard in your life. Maybe now you have a pension. Maybe Social Security. Maybe a little bit more disposable time. So even when someone enters into retirement, the work is not done. A lot of times that's when more significant time can be given to kingdom projects and kingdom work. A lot of our ministries here are populated by retired folks like the lunch ministry. All of our elders, the pastors in our church are retired men. They have some disposable time that they are giving now, a large significant portion of it, to kingdom work. That opportunity never goes away. And as we age, maybe we're not physically able to do everything that we used to do when we were younger. But even if somebody is housebound, maybe watching live stream from home, not able to get out very much, there's ministry to be done. Perhaps the most important ministry calling in the church, that's the ministry of prayer. And there may be opportunities. We're able to give more time to prayer in our lives because we have that disposable time than ever before. But I just want to say the basic thing right here that work is good. And we see that in the shepherds. Good work. All right, here's the second thing from the shepherds modeled and illustrated. Good hearing. Luke chapter 2, verses 9 through 14. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them. The radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all the people. The Savior, yes, Christ the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize them by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. And suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. They heard from God. Good hearing. That's what I mean. They heard from God. Again, why the shepherds and not the Pharisees? Why did the shepherds hear from God and not the Pharisees that night? Because the shepherds had good hearing for hearing from God. Remember Jesus saying, he who has ears to hear, let him what? Hear. The shepherds had ears to hear. I don't know why it may be something about that vocation they're out in the fields aren't they not close to creation close to nature it's dark on the night shift it's quiet there's no ambient light there's no electricity you can see the stars it just the very environment perhaps lends itself to being close to god to reflecting on spiritual things to contemplating his word It's kind of what I'm talking about when I say good hearing. It's a matter of cultivating the hidden interior life. Think about the Pharisees for a minute. They did a lot of religious things and it was all for public consumption. Is that not true? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, don't be like the Pharisees. When they pray, they they just want everybody to see. It's for the public. When they fast, they want everybody to see. When they give, you know, they're ringing a bell here. I'm giving. It was all for public consumption. He said, don't be like that. When you pray, go into a closet. Quiet away. When you give, don't let, it, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. When you fast, don't change your appearance. We're called to have a secret life. A private life. A, but a, a good secret life. But one that is only seen by God. This is the interior life that we are to cultivate. When I say, so we're talking about now, let's make the application. The shepherds heard from God. We want to hear from God. Although they illustrate it, I don't mean to hear from God in the exact same way that they did. Uh, An angel a supernatural revelation, that was very rare, certainly for the shepherds. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for instruction, conviction, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. What the shepherds saw and heard, an audible revelation from God, we have written for us. It's inscripturated. It's the written scriptures. I have never heard an audible voice from God. I'll just confess that. I've never seen an angel. Uh, Jesus has never appeared to me like He did Saul on the road to Damascus. I've never heard a voice from a burning bush. I've never heard from God the Father. I've never heard a still, small voice speaking in my mind or heart. I've never heard the audible voice of God. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm not saying you haven't. I'm just saying I haven't, and I truly don't expect to. And in some ways, the written word that we have from God, in some ways, is superior to an audible voice. Listen again to what theologian Jack Cottrell says. If we have anything in the category of objective, verbal revelation that is written rather than unwritten, that must be our norm for theology. That is what we understand about God. Written revelation takes precedence over a one-time oral revelation because of its finality and continuing availability in dependable form. The written revelation takes precedence. Don't feel shorted because an angel has not appeared to you or you have not received an audible revelation from God. Good hearing means cultivating the interior life. Because we are not shepherds, I'm pretty confident looking around here this morning that nobody here is a literal shepherd. Nobody's going to work tonight or tomorrow out in the field watching over sheep or lambs. But because we are not, and our vocation does not lend itself to being in the quiet, in the dark, out and alone, where we can reflect and contemplate, we're in a busy world, we're in a digital world, we're in a complex society as far as the different kinds of works that are available to us, that simply means if we're to do this, we must be much more intentional about cultivating the interior life, maybe, than they had to be. In William Irvine's book, A Guide to the Good Life, he writes this. There's a danger that you will mislive. That despite all your activity, despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, danger that when you're on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable. You squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various baubles life has to offer. Now, you know what he's talking here about? Being distracted about transitory things that in the end don't really matter. What kind of things would those be? An iPhone? It might be Facebook. It might be TikTok. TikTok? or Instagram, or a hundred other things. I don't have a clue what they are. It might be binge watching on Netflix. Are we not a society and a culture that is driven by the consumption of entertainment? Oh yes. Now I consume entertainment, and I am involved in technology. All of us are. We swim in it like the fish, like that old saw, the fish swimming in the water, who's saying, what is water? It is so much a part of our life and our environment, sometimes we don't even recognize how it's influencing us. But what we're saying here is, we simply must, and there is no substitute for this. I'm talking about goodness. There's no substitute for cultivating an interior life. For slowing down, drawing apart, and spending that quiet time with the Word of God, hearing from God, In the Word and prayer, contemplating and reflecting on it, there's no substitute for that. But it's hard for us to do. It's so hard. We are so busy. Only 24 hours in a day. If I had one more hour, if I just had a 25th hour to get my stuff done, you know what you'd do? You'd watch another two episodes on Netflix. We'd find a way to fill it up with baubles. I'm guilty. So, I mean, we really have to work at doing it. Slowing down, drawing apart. To hear from God. It's possible. Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley had 19 children. uh, 10 of whom survived infancy. She homeschooled those children. Six days a week. Homeschooling hours were 9 to 12 and 2 to 5. And she also worked a little garden out there. So they have something to eat because her husband was always gone off doing husband things. Just to say she was busy. But she had determined that she was going to spend two hours a day with God. And what she did, this was her method, she would take her apron, fling it over her head, like make a little tent over her body. She called it the tent of meeting, like in the Old Testament. And she trained those children, you don't bother Mama Wesley when she's underneath the apron. And that's where she interceded for her kids and for her family, and she spent time with God and plumbed the depths of Scripture two hours a day, ten children in the home. Now I don't say that to guilt anybody. I feel a little guilty myself right now. But I don't say that to guilt anybody her spirituality and discipline exceeds mine, for sure, just to say. Just to say, where there's a will, there's a what? There's a way. I can't do this for you. You can't do this for me. But we do, we're talking about being good. The shepherds had good hearing. They're the ones who heard. We, we, we cultivate that interior life so we can hear from God. All right, now here's the third thing. But we're talking about the shepherds, how they kind of illustrate the goodness that we want to incorporate into our homes. Our homes need us to hear from God. Even if you're the only person in your home, you need to hear from God. Okay, so the third thing is good presence. presence. Verse 15, when the angels had returned to heaven, the, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem, let's see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in a manger. The, the present of the shepherds was their presence. Their presence was their present. It was a blessing to Mary and Joseph and Jesus that they showed up. Think how sad it would have been if Mary and Joseph had had Jesus and there's nobody there to share the joy of that birth because they weren't home for Christmas. They weren't home in Nazareth. They're away in Bethlehem. Mom and dad aren't there. The extended family's not there. All the support systems, nobody's there. It's just them in the barn, the babies in the feed trough, and there they are. Finally, somebody shows up to share the joy. When you're present and it's a joyful occasion, it multiplies the joy. When we're present and it's a sad occasion, it helps to minimize the sadness or the grief. But they showed up. And it was a double blessing because not only were they sharing in the birth of Jesus, they knew the secret. They're the only other ones who knew the secret identity of the birth, the baby. Because they're the only other ones the angels had told. This is not just a baby. This is the Savior. This is the Messiah we've been waiting for. So they're able to share in the secret with Mary and Joseph at the same time. Presence is good, and it's a blessing. It's a blessing. Have you ever thought how many scriptures call us to be present in the lives of our homes and with other people? Hebrews ten twenty five. Let us not neglect our meeting together. Matthew twenty five thirty six. Jesus said, "When I was in prison, you visited." 2 John 12, I hope to visit you and talk face to face. James writes, pure and undefiled religion, that's to visit the orphans. My professor back in college, family living class said, you got to be where the being is. You got to be where the being is. So if you've had children or are raising children, you know what that means. If you raise children, there are times they got a football game, they got a soccer game, they got violin recital, they got jazz dance. You want to be there. It's important to be where the being is. And there are other opportunities. I mean, we have people in our congregation, they are being where the being is by fostering children or by adopting children. Now, the, your presence in that situation is a life-giving presence. We have grandparents in our congregation who are helping to raise their grandchildren. That's the blessing. That's the good of presence. We have other grandparents in our congregation. They're not just helping to raise their grandchildren. They're raising their grandchildren. I know that of at least two grandparents in our church. Stepping into the gap and making a life-giving dis- difference for children or for grandchildren. In John Comer's book about eliminating hurry in the life, he lists ten types of hurry sickness. I'm not going to read all those, but I'm going to give you the tenth one. Isolation. In isolation, you feel disconnected from God and others and your own soul. On those rare times when you actually stop to pray, and by pray, I don't mean ask God for stuff. I mean sit with God in the quiet. You're so stressed and distracted, your mind can't settle down long enough to enjoy the Father's company. Same with your friends. When you're with them, you're also with your phone or a million miles away in your mind, running down the to-do list. And even when you're alone, you come face-to-face with the void that is your soul and immediately run back to the familiar groove of busyness and digital distraction. That's hurry sickness. Again, we're back to hearing from God. Being with others is part of the overflow of that. It is a good, good thing. It's hard to do. We're all doing the best of our ability. We're trying. Nobody does this perfectly. But don't lose heart and don't give up. There is hope and there is a king of glory. Glory. So let me just say two more things here. We talked about the good work, the good hearing, and the good presence. Um, Still thinking about the shepherds. The fourth thing here is the good word. They had a good word. Again, verse 17. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel has said to them about this child. They talked about what they had seen and heard. Again, they're hearing from the Lord. What was it that they'd seen and heard? What was it that made their, their word, their message, such a good word or a good message? Let's revisit it again. The angel said, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all the people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Glory to God in the highest heaven, peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. This is a message of salvation. It is a message of peace and it is a message of grace. That's a good word. That's a good word that you need in your home and that I need in my home. We need that word of grace in our church. Our community, everybody needs a good word, a word of grace. Grace, of course, is God treating us better than we deserve to be treated. It's actually God treating us the opposite of how we deserve, what we've earned. What have we earned? I mean, we've sinned and rebelled. We've earned condemnation. We've earned judgment. We've earned eternal death and separation from God. That's what we deserve and earn. But what does God give us? The opposite of that. He gives us grace, forgiveness, eternal life, eternal life in the presence of God. We all need a word of grace in our homes. Husbands, your wives need a word of grace to be treated better than they deserve, sometimes the opposite of how they deserve. Wives, your husband needs a word of grace in the home. Parents, our children need grace. Should there be discipline? Yeah, but the undercurrent of all homes needs to be a word of grace. All churches need to have the undercurrent of grace in the church home. David Siemens wrote a book called Healing Grace. Now, David Siemens is a preacher, and he talked about when his son was in his teenage years, you know, at that church, they would preach and then have an invitation hymn. I grew up in a church like that. There's an invitation hymn at the end of every sermon and service. And his son came up for the invitation hymn to be saved every Sunday. I mean, he, would, he was saved, and then he'd get saved again, and then he would come up again and get saved, and this continued to go on. So finally he sat down, David sat down with his son, he said, what's going on? And his son said, well, you know, I want to follow God and, and I want to be good and I want to do right and I hope I'll be faithful this time, but what if I fail and what if I fall? And uh, Siemens looked at his son, he said, son, you know, I know you pretty well. I've known you your whole life. I probably know you better than anyone except for maybe your mother. And I can say this with confidence about You? You? will fail and you will fall. So what? And it's like a light went off in his son's head. He says, yeah, so what? It doesn't mean that I'm condemned. It's not to say that sin doesn't matter. Sanctification is not important. That grace is a license to sin. It's not to say any of that. It is simply to say a word of grace. We're not saved by how good we get. How sanctified we we get. We're saved by grace through faith and trust in Jesus. When we became a Christian, God imputed to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. We are in that righteousness by grace as long as we have faith. That's a good word that everybody needs to hear. And then one final thing here from the shepherds. I call this good vibrations. Good vibrations. Verse 20. The shepherds went back to their flocks glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen uh, back to real life so we started at work we're ending at work they're going back to the fields they're going back to a real job not an ideal job to a real family it's not a hallmark family their life where they work that's not a hallmark movie it's an episode of dirty jobs it's hard it's real there are challenges but they're going back, praising and glorifying God. I call this good vibrations. I just think of them singing. They got a song in their heart. Their vocal cords are vibrating. That's the original instrument. Good vibrations coming out of their mouth and singing a song. We all have challenges, but we go into our homes, praising God, glorifying Him. We talked about worship last week, how worship needs to be in the home. And that changes, always changes the dynamic. So Nick Ripkin. In his book, The Insanity of God, talks about going on a mission trip in the 80s to Mogadishu, and they're in Somalia, and they're helping to give out grain. There's UN troops there to help keep the peace. There are American troops there to help keep the peace. It's a volatile situation. they got tons of grain to give out. The Somalis are lining up hundreds of people in line before the sun comes up, and then the sun comes up, and it starts getting hot right away. And by the time it gets to be around noon, they've given out almost all the food. There's still a lot of people in line. There's a lot of tension. And he says the, on this particular day, and they, they had with Nick Ripken was one of the workers was a Christian who had taken time off vacation time to do this. He was six foot five, about 250 pounds. They called him Bubba. It was an intimidating. Look at he helped keep the peace, but he had a, a soft heart. There was one woman in line, an elderly woman, I, nobody knows what it was, but something, a switch flipped in her. She was angry, maybe she was hot, she was tired of waiting, the, the food was substandard, but she picks out Bubba to walk up to, and she looks up at him, and she starts yelling and screaming, and Somali, of course, he doesn't have a clue what she's saying, but he's just looking down at her, smiling. He's got a big smile on his face. He just listens and smiles. It seemed like the more he smiled, the madder she got. And things are starting to get tense. I mean, everybody's looking at this situation. What's going to happen? Finally, she realizes she's not getting through. She bends down. She picks up two handfuls of dirt, dust, and wheat chaff and throws them in Bubba's face. The rifles come up. You hear the click, click, click. The U.N. soldiers, American soldiers, it's a tense situation. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Ripken says if it had been a Somali man that she'd done that to, he probably would have beaten her and felt like he was justified in doing so. So what's he going to do? What Bubba did, he rubbed the dirt out of his eyes. He looked down at this woman and he began to sing. You ain't nothing but a hound dog crying all the time. He's singing Elvis, hound dog. She doesn't have a clue what he's saying, but she just looks at him for a minute and just turns around and walks away. The rifles come down. The tension is broken. The Somalis start to smile. Bubba keeps on singing. You ain't never caught a rabbit and you ain't no friend of mine. The Somalis come over and they pat Bubba on the back and they're thanking him. They said, we didn't know you could sing. He says, oh yeah, back in the States, I'm known as Elvis. I'm very famous. And Ripken says what he witnessed there was a little moment of grace. A little moment of grace that made all the difference in that situation. A man with a song in his heart. says when he got back home, he got a CD of Elvis' greatest hits. He put his picture on it, Bubba did, and sent it to the Somali guards. Somewhere in in Somalia, there's some guards who think that Elvis Presley is a six-foot-six dude in America. A relief worker who's still living today. Worship, glorifying and praising God, a song in our hearts. We go back into our work and into our homes, but everything's different because we're praising Him, our Lord.